and we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 205, aka season 3, episode 25, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, uh, flying solo again this week, and probably for the next couple of episodes, uh, MC is out on the ranch doing manly things and won't be able to join us. Uh, so you know what that means. This is going to be another episode uh, or two of Richie Rich Reads the News. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to throw in my two cents uh, for all that it's worth in the uh, Tom Woods libertarian voluntary versus coercive whatever the hell he was talking about debate. Uh, because I, th- I think uh, if you're familiar with what's going on, uh, I think it was blown a little bit out of proportion. Uh, I think it could have been worded better. Uh, and if you don't know what's going on, um, go figure it out. You Use your Googles and use your Tom Woods r- links and references. Uh, because I don't think it needed to get to the proportions that it did. Uh, I think that was just a, an oversight in some rambunctious individuals. Um, so here is my take on it. Um, someone posted something to the effect of a normalizing sex work in a libertarian society. And Tom Woods responded with uh, equating that to normalizing rape uh, in a libertarian society. And that was not his point, and that was misunderstood all around, uh, mostly because he did not do a good job of expounding on that point. Uh, And so far as writing an entire article explaining his point, uh, but also in doing so, putting down the people that misunderstood him um, by by basically calling us all dumb for not understanding what his point was. So my understanding, right, after reading everything, uh, is that the point that Tom Woods was trying to make is that not everything in a libertarian society need be normalized, right? Not every voluntary action between two consenting individuals should be considered normal behavior. And I don't think, I don't think his point needed to go further than that. He did use some bad examples. And like I said, you know, you can check the article for the rest of them. Um, But I somewhat uh, agree with him. And I agree with him to the point that, of course, it's bizarre to believe that every, that every type of voluntary interaction uh, should be viewed as normal behavior, uh, you know, in in any given community or society or anything like that. And I've also, you know, I, I'm also an advocate for if it's voluntary, go ahead and do it. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think the two need to be conflated, which is what I think was going on uh, in the entire uh, argument, discussion, debate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think that. The point to hammer home um, is what I'm saying, and that's not every not every voluntary interaction needs to be normalized in in a society. And I think if it didn't go any further than that, he wouldn't have gotten the backlash uh, that he did. He wouldn't have suffered the outrage uh, that he did. And <laughs> some people are calling it an excommunication, uh, and I don't think that's accurate uh, at all either. Um, you know, he he does very good work. For for the most part, um, and, and not in his defense, um, but to, to, you know, give, maybe critique him a little bit. Um, he also did not have to turn this into a, a conservative libertarian versus left libertarian debate or fiasco either. Right. I'm, and the, the, the way I'm on his side is I've said in the past, uh, that there's, there's libertarianism or, you know, anarchism, or voluntarism, or whatever other, you know, term you want to put on it. And then there's like that plus, right? There's, and I, I have always considered the left libertarian position to be libertarian plus positions for the most part. And that is, you know, the standard libertarian position uh, for most people is uh, based on the non-aggression axiom, the non-aggression principle, and that is don't hit people and don't take their stuff, right? If you can, if you can manage to leave people alone and not bother them and not harass them um, and not aggress against them uh, and then not advocate for um, or support people who do uh, 
right? I think I think you can credibly call yourself uh, a libertarian, right? I, I'm not going to get into the whole voting thing because, you know, in my mind, that's where we can start drawing dividing lines between the libertarian position and what I would prefer, which is the anarchist position, because this is the anarchist experience, uh, not the libertarian experience, because who needs that? Um, but again, as I've also said before, in, in, in polite company, uh, I will interchangeably use the labels. Um, you know, it's, it's an impolite company where, you know, one has to take precedence over the other. Um, and, and to go back to what I was saying, uh, the libertarian position is very basic. Do you follow the non-aggression axiom or do you not? Right. Beyond anything beyond that, right. Anything. And, and for a while it was like, you know, the, the brutalist position. Um, thank you, Jeffrey Tucker for that. Um, and that kind of came and went as far as, you know, a, a, a label that we would use, but it's, I would accept it. I'm a, a, you know, it's, it's the bare minimum position to be considered a libertarian. Um, and that is following the non-aggression axiom. Anything beyond that I've considered libertarian plus. Now the reason why the left libertarian position seems to be libertarian plus positions to me, uh, is because they advocate for positive actions to make social changes in a community, right? You know, the, the libertarian position is don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. And the libertarian plus position is, well, we must create uh, an alternative to the government positions uh, to, to help the poor people, to, you know, assuage the homeless epidemic, um, to, you know, what will we do with the children and how will we care for the elderly uh, and any other, uh, for lack of a better term, and, you know, the common parlance is now, any other social justice position seems to be libertarian plus because it goes above and beyond uh, what would be considered, you know, the, the base libertarian position of the non-aggression axiom. Uh, and sex work and the advocation for and the normalization of that is a libertarian plus position because yes, it should be allowed uh, as a voluntary consensual act amongst consenting individuals uh, for money or not. Uh, it is, it is, it is a libertarian act insofar as it doesn't aggress on either party in the trade, nor does it put an undue burden on any external parties to the trade. Um, but it's not it's not an area that all libertarians need to agree on, right? If you're if you're a strict libertarian, you go, well, yeah, of course it should be legal, right? It's it's consent between two adults. It's a voluntary interaction, not a problem. Um, and the the libertarian plus position in this case, the left libertarian position, what Tom Woods has a problem with, um, is that they advocate for above and beyond just allowing it, um, and advocate for normalizing it in polite society. Um, and Tom Woods, you know, being the conservative libertarian-ish person that he is, uh, doesn't necessarily want to see, uh, you know, hookers and prostitutes on the side of the road as he's driving through his local community, right? That And that's, you know, that really is the bottom line. If, it, if it's normal, um, it's like, you know, setting up a brothel uh, next to a drugstore where you just, oh yeah, this, I'm just going to go pick up some eggs and a prostitute. Uh, and... Whereas that should be allowed and should not be prohibited against uh, insofar that doing that doesn't aggress against anyone and doesn't violate the non-aggression axiom. Uh, it's just not, it's also not necessary in a libertarian society or an anarchist society. Uh, and that's, I think that's the bottom line to his point. Now, I took a long time to explain that as well, which means it's not as cut and dry as it could be, but I think overall that was his main point is it's a, it's a libertarian plus position, not a base libertarian position. And in Tom Woods, uh, you know, homeowners association or, uh, voluntary community or planned or whatever, whatever term you want to use for like the little neighborhood that you all congregate in. Um, uh, I don't think he would want to see that out in the open and there's nothing wrong with that either. Right, because I'm I'm not going to list them off, but there's a handful of libertarian plus positions um, that we can discuss, debate, um, you know, theorize over, but that doesn't necessarily have to come to fruition, right? You know, if 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 and and a lot of the uh, what is now considered vice crimes 
would fall into that, right? Most most people are, you know, big fans of the legalization, decriminalization, popularization of marijuana use and CBDs and THCs and all that other fun stuff. Um, but they don't want to see like a heroin junkie shooting up in the car uh, out in front of, you know, their property or on the roads or anything, you know, even if they're, if the junkie was shooting up in front of his own house, right? Uh, you don't want to see that. But do we want to decriminalize it? Do we want to legalize it? Do we do libertarians and anarchists want to make it okay for people to use the drug of the choice um, whenever they want, so long as they're not harming other people? Absolutely, right? But do we walk? Do we also want to walk down the street, uh, you know, through the neighborhood where there happens to be a handful of people uh, using that substance on their own property, but maybe within view of everybody else? Uh, probably not, right? And, and that, again, that's just one example of, of, I think, where the dividing line is, right? Should drug use be legalized across the board? Absolutely. Uh, should drug use be normalized uh, in society? Uh, probably not, right? That's, it's not, um, depending on the drug, right? And, you know, we, again, you marijuana people, you tweet THC, CBD, hallucinogenics, ayahuascans, uh, you know, you, you want to have your, your, uh, drugs go for it, right? No one's, no one here is trying to stop you from doing that. Um, I, you know, I advocate drug use. I just don't do it myself. Um, but I think, I, I think I make my point when I say that you don't want to see, you know, the, the meth guy or the, you know, the, the heroin addicts, uh, out in public, um, you know, on, on their porch with a needle in the arm, just like you would see someone out on their porch uh, with a beer in their hand. Um, I, I think as a society, as a community, uh, we differentiate the two levels of substance use and abuse. Uh, and then one, you know, would be considered normal in, in, you know, polite society. And one would just be legal in polite society. And you wouldn't want to normalize that. You wouldn't want to go like, oh yeah, if you want to put the needle in the arm, just go ahead, dude. No problem. Right. It's like, well, you can, and then you make that choice, but it's probably a bad idea and you should probably think twice about it. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've made my point, uh, as much as I can, but I just wanted to weigh in on that. Um, because like I said, it got out of hand, it got a little over the top, uh, and I think unnecessarily so. So not all things voluntary need to be normalized. Uh, just to reiterate the, the, the main point there, uh, moving on, uh, one more quick thing before we get into the news. Uh, I want to, uh, give a shout out and another advocacy for, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, because when the post office loses your birthday card with your birthday money in it, uh, you start to realize that there are better ways to send money long distances, uh, and that cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically is probably the best way to do that. So uh, all hail the the crypto space uh, and boo to you, USPS, uh, for ruining that for me. So thank you very much. Now into the articles. Uh, these first, this first one and then subsequently two uh, were sent to me by friend of the show. Uh, because he wanted to hear our position on it. And unfortunately for him, uh, MC's out. So he's only going to get mine. Um, and we had a little private discussion about it. And I, I kind of told him what I would most likely say on the show. So headlines. A federal judge finds mail-only military draft unconstitutional. A headline. The mail-only military draft may be unconstitutional, but conscription itself is immoral. A headline. Proof that the rich aren't going to fund the tidal wave of new spending. Uh, headline, she freed a crying bear caught in a trap meant for mama bear. Now she's been sentenced to jail. Uh, headline, why capitalism, ooh, such a bad word in anarchist circles, uh, is the in answer to environmental concerns about overpopulation. Uh, headline, study finds nearly half of child and adult sex trafficking victims were abused by police. And finally, headline, should entrepreneurs really have to justify their creations to the government? All right, like I said, let's get started. Uh, I want to do the first two pretty much back-to-back. -back. Uh, federal judge finds male-only military draft unconstitutional. Because women are no longer excluded from combat duty, the time has passed for selective service to differentiate between men and women, the judge found. More than 45 years after the military draft ended, a federal judge has ruled that a law requiring men but not women to register for it is unconstitutional. 
In a ruling issued late Friday in Houston, U.S. District Judge Gray Miller denied the government's motion to stay a lawsuit originally brought up by the National Coalition for Men, a nonprofit men's rights advocacy group, which is seeking an injunction ordering the Selective Service System to require women to register for the draft. The draft itself ended during the final stages of the Vietnam War in 1973, but all American men age 18 to 26 are still required to register with the select selective service system so the military could move quickly if it ever needed to reinstate conscription. Miller, who was appointed by the court, uh, excuse me, Miller, who was appointed to the court by President George W. Bush in 2006, noted that the Supreme Court upheld excluding women from the draft in 1981 because women were excluded from combat duty. But that prohibition was lifted in 2015, he wrote, excluding them from registering for the draft made no constitutional sense. If there ever was a time to discuss the place of women in the armed services, that time has passed, he wrote. The government had asked Miller to delay the case pending a final report from the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service, which, among other military staffing issues, is reviewing whether women should be required to register. A final report isn't expected until March 2020. An interim report last month gave no indication which way the commission is leaning. While Miller sided with the coalition in his ruling late Friday, his judgment didn't order the government to change its draft rules because the immediate issue was the government's request for a stay, not the coalition's larger request for an injunction. Women are now allowed in combat, so this decision is long overdue, said Mark Angelucci, an attorney for the coalition who said women should face the same repercussions as men for any noncompliance with registration laws. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit civil rights monitor he likened to the National Coalition for Men, which is based in San Diego, to male supremacist groups seeking to roll back protections for women. In a statement Saturday, the coalition said the male-only draft is an aspect of socially institutionalized male disposability and helps reinforce the stereotypes that support discrimination against men in other areas such as child custody, divorce, criminal sentencing, paternity fraud, education, public benefits, domestic violence services, due process rights, genital autonomy, and more. Uh, end of the article. Uh, so you get the idea. Uh, the, the, the women of the world or the United States are going to be required, uh, you know, constitutionally required, I guess, as odd as that sounds, uh, to register for the draft. Now, get into the uh, what's wrong with that side of things. The male-only military draft may be unconstitutional, but conscription itself is immoral. <clears throat> and I'm just going to read the whole article instead of trying to parse out where the, the differences may lie. Uh, in 1981, the Supreme the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that women could be exempt from the military draft since they were excluded from combat duty. But in 2015, Defense Secretary Ash Carter announced he would lift the military ban on women serving in combat, a move that allowed hundreds of thousands of women to serve in frontline positions during wartime. The next year, the top officers of the Army and Marine Corps followed that policy to its logical conclusion and told Congress that it was time for women to register for future military drafts. On Friday, U.S. District Judge Gray Miller applied the inevitable legal reasoning in saying that a law requiring men but not women to register for the military draft is unconstitutional. If there ever was a time to discuss the place of women in the armed services, that time has passed, wrote Judge Miller in his ruling. The judge is partially right. If we were going to have a military draft and women are eligible for combat, an idea I vehemently oppose, then it's only fair that women be forced to serve alongside men. But rather than follow this bizarre standard of equality to its natural conclusion, we should instead recognize it's time we abolish the idea of military conscription altogether. The U.S. Constitution requires Congress to raise and support armies in order to provide for the common defense. Uh, what it doesn't specify, however, is how the military should be raised. There are, in fact, only three options available. All volunteer, forced conscription, or some combination of the two. Currently, our military is an all-volunteer force, a model that has proven not only to be the most effective, but which is also the most moral. We, also, we have an all-volunteer military largely because of free market economist Milton Friedman. At the height of the Vietnam War, U.S. Commander General William Westmoreland testified before the President's Commission on an All-Volunteer Force, a commission that was exploring the feasibility of ending the military draft. As Newsday reported, staunchly opposed to an all-volunteer military, which must pay its soldiers market wages, General Westmoreland proclaimed that he did not want to command an army of mercenaries. One of the commission members immediately shot back with the question, General, would you rather command an army of slaves? 
Friedman based his argument primarily on the need for freedom in human flourishing, but he also noted its effects on the lower classes. A byproduct of freedom to serve would be avoidance of the present arbitrary discrimination among different groups. A large faction of the poor are rejected on physical or mental grounds. The relatively well-to-do used to be in a specially good position to take advantage of the possibilities of deferment offered by continuing their schooling. Hence, the draft bears disproportionately on the upper-lower classes and the lower-middle classes. The fraction of high school graduates who serve is vastly higher than of either who have gone to college or those who drop out before finishing high school. Some people, however, agreed with Friedman, and yet still believe in an all-volunteer force is less moral than conscription, and for much the same reason he opposed it. They would argue that people on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder are more likely to be attracted to military service, while the upper classes have more options available to them and would therefore have less incentive to join. We call this the burden model, since it implies that the burden of the military service is disproportionately shared by the lower economic groups. There are two problems I have with this burden model of military service. The first is that the way it reduces service to one's country to a matter of economics. Those with fewer choices for jobs or education are more likely to enlist, while those who have money have more options to choose from will avoid military service. Under this view, the military is attractive to those with limited opportunities, while those with a broader range of selections will find it significantly less alluring. A primary flaw in this claim is that it is not true. Most members of the military come from middle-class neighborhoods, but even if it were true that the poor made up the bulk of the military, the unequal representation of the socioeconomic classes would not be inherently immoral. I myself was on the borderline between poor and lower middle class when I joined the Marines in 1988, but economic advancement was not the reason I joined or why I stayed in for 15 years, nor was it the reason most people I knew joined the military. But even if it were true that most people joined for economic reasons, I would still reject the bird model since it implies that the system is immoral when it is the people making the choice uh, who are morally flawed. Which brings me to the second problem with the model. It concludes that since the military service is a burden, moral consideration requires that the load be shared as equally as possible. Again, I must point out that this view is not inherently wrong, but where I think the flaw in reasoning lies is that it puts the focus on the ethical choice rather than the ethical chooser. The burden of military service is akin to that of a person who chooses to adopt a child. While choosing to become a mother or father has obvious economic consequences, few people see that as the sole reason for adopting and wanting or abandoned child. Before they are adopted, orphans are cared for by the state and are therefore the collective responsibility of all citizens. But when someone steps forward and agrees to take the child into their home, the burden of responsibility shifts mainly onto the soldier's shoulders of the new parents. Although the state may still have some obligations, the parent assumes the primary child care duties. We do not, however, consider the system to be immoral because the state does not force people to take in orphans. Instead, we allow people with the requisite virtues, love, compassion, self-sacrifice, to freely and willingly choose to take this burden upon themselves. The same holds true for those who serve in the military. Currently, our nation does not and should not force the obligation of national defense onto those who do not willingly choose to take it upon themselves. Instead, we allow those who possess certain moral virtues, courage, honor, commitment, to heed the call of duty. Not all who serve, of course, does so for the purest of motives. There is no shortage of scholarship mercenaries who joined only to gain money for college as a means of improving their post-military vocational options. But these people, no matter how large their numbers, are not the heart and soul of our military. The Corps is comprised of men and women who truly love their country. They love the people and the ideals for which our nation stands so much they are willing to sacrifice and bear any burden in order to assure, ensure its survival. As a Christian, I believe that since no one meets the standards of goodness set by God, no one should be excessively proud of their virtue. Compared to the ultimate standard, even the greatest of saints falls short. But this view should not be mistaken as an endorsement of moral egalitarianism. All men are created equal and should be afforded the same human rights, but not all men are equally virtuous. The cost of liberty is not paid by everyone equally. It is a debt assumed by a select few. If Americans truly value freedom as much as they claim, then the military should be more difficult to get into than an Ivy League school. The elite would be lined up around the block, letters of recommendation in hand, hoping to enlist and serve in the greatest military history of the world. But in our nation, our standards for what is considered elite is not based on virtues such as courage, duty, and self-sacrifice, but rather on money, power, and education. 
This is why the draft is neither necessary nor desirable. Conscription may be necessary to force the wealthy and privileged to share the burden of duty, but conscription has never been needed to attract the virtuous. If the United States ever reaches the point where conscription is truly necessary, if we get to a stage when we no longer produce enough men and women to heed the call to defend our country, then we will no longer have a country worth defending. End of the article. Now, I will say that my response uh, to my buddy was a little more simplistic uh, and, <laughs> and simple. Um, insofar as um, I said, well, th- this is the difference between uh, freedom and equality, right? This is, this is the reason um, why we, we, we make that uh, discernment uh, when we're talking about what, it's, what you know, a post-state of affairs, right? The truly libertarian, the truly anarchist society um, does not necessarily value equality, uh, but rather freedom. Um, and so when I, when I send him a message back about the first article, um, about it, I said, well, uh, this is, you know, unconstitutional, but in the wrong direction, right? Because it, it should be unconstitutional, uh, to have conscription anyway, because conscription itself, right, is, is basically forced labor, which, you know, there is an amendment about, but for some reason, when it comes to the military, they, they're granted an exception, um, for whatever reason. Right, it's it's immoral uh, to force anybody to do any sort of labor uh, against their will, uh, and when they go like, well, you know, now, now if it's unfair to men, then we have to make it unfair to women too, and put women in the draft. I go, well, no, you you, you went the wrong way, right? Right. Rather than make women uh, apply for selective services, uh, they should remove the requirement for men and make people more free. Right, more free to, to choose what they want to do without fear of being, you know, conscripted. Uh, should whatever war the United States government currently be involved in escalate to a point where more, you know, cannon fodder bodies are needed, uh, and and it should be easier to get away from that type of quote unquote service. Um, and so that that was uh, my main point to my buddy. It's like, well, okay, you know, this it's just a, it's just uh, the wrong way for freedom, uh, and that's that's pretty much the bottom line, right? You want, you want more freedom. Uh, well, I, I say I, uh, you know, uh, from, from the anarchist perspective, from the anarchist experience perspective, uh, I don't care so much about equality uh, so long as there's freedom. And that may be the concept or the idea that gets me uh, backlash again um, from the commies, from the ancoms, from the, the mutualists, uh, as we discussed a little bit last week. Uh, is because they put such a high value on equality amongst individuals and amongst the, the community members uh, that they're willing to sacrifice individual freedoms and liberties in order to attain equality. And to me, that seems antithetical uh, to the idea of anarchism in general, which, you know, because how do you, how do you force equality on people uh, without restricting their freedoms, without restricting their liberties, and basically without... Uh, creating a ruling class, uh, to determine who, who is equal to whom, uh, just one level below them, right? Like the ruling class will never be equal to everybody, to everybody else. Uh, but they must pretend to be, uh, in order for, you know, anarchists to accept, uh, the other anarchists, I said, I should say to accept this position. Uh, and you know, much like, much like the first article that I read here, uh, it would be equality in the wrong direction. Um, because you can make everyone equal, um, but then you will make some less free than others. Because, you, you know, un- unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, you can't have it both ways. Uh, because when people are free and, and, you know, and freedom and liberty is uh, prolific, uh, people will choose different endeavors. Uh, people will choose to pursue different uh, uh, lines of work, lines of uh, interest. Uh, and, and therefore will create an imbalance in those areas, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible to think that that won't happen um, because if, if you look at the way society is structured now, when you look at people with hobbies uh, or, you know, outside interests other than, you know, what they do for a living or even what they do do for a living, um, people are better than others at certain things, right? And, and the people who are better at things get compensated more for that increased skill set. And there's nothing to be done about that uh, to, to equalize that playing field um, unless you take away the freedoms of the people who've pursued those alternatives. And I, I, would, 
I would prefer a society where people are allowed to pursue their own self-interest uh, or their own outside interest or any, any of those things um, and be compensated for their skills rather than one that says like, no, 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 you must do this uh, because we are all equal here. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, the burden is placed upon everyone equally. No, it's not. Um, it's not. And it will never be that way uh, if you allow for, uh, for human flourishing, freedom and liberty. Uh, which is why, uh, again, to go back to this ar uh, argument again, which is why I hyphenate uh, my anarchism um, into that of anarcho-capitalism, the ancapisms that people don't like, uh, because it's 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 hard for me to envision a world that has the most freedom, the most liberty, and yet uh, everything else is equal. I just I don't I don't see it. And maybe it's lack of imagination on my part. Maybe a post-scarcity world will solve that problem. Um, but we're not there yet. And I don't foresee post-scarcity uh, as long as we exist in a world, on a planet, uh, in a universe uh, with finite and limited resources. It's just, you know, someone has to decide and the owners of such things should decide. And that's, and that's the bottom line for that. Moving on. And speaking of that dirty word. Uh, capitalism. Uh, why capitalism is the answer to environmental concerns about overpopulation. It is difficult to place oneself in the national conversation without entering a hotly debated sphere of sustainability and what needs to be done to create a sustainable future. Characterized by the usage of resources such that future prosperity is not hindered, it would seem as though the key to ensuring the existence of sufficient resources for the future is to prevent overconsumption of present resources, which appears impossible as the population grows and consumes more of the limited resource stock on the earth. Overpopulation defined by biologist Paul Ehrlich, who once described overpopulation as a ticking time bomb, occurs when a population can't be maintained without rapidly depleting non-renewable resources or converting renewable resources into non-renewable ones, and without degrading the capacity of an environment to support the population with the finite resources on the planet. It's only a matter of time before we strip the planet bare to deal with the billions more on the way in the coming decades. India itself had thrust itself into this debate in the past with its consideration of a two-child policy. Fortunately, the market economy is not a zero-sum game, which led to Ehrlich famously losing a bet with economist Julian Simon, who astutely put his money on resource costs falling in the face of population growth. A growing economy can combat much of the risk of population bomb because for growth to occur, the resources cannot just be used up by consumers, but per se's laws of markets, they also must be produced and used increasingly efficiently by actors in the market. <clears throat> As the world's population grows, markets respond to increased demand for necessities like food and energy by changing prices and incentivizing producers to either produce more of that demanded good or explore new and innovative ways to extract resources, leading to greater and more efficient overall production. Contrary to the predictions of the doomsayers, food prices have dropped enormously in the last century. In India alone, food production has nearly quadrupled since the 1960s. Other resources like energy, metal, and timber have also enjoyed massive boosts in production, all enabled by global economic growth. Of course, this logic might appear to fail to translate into the production of non-renewable resources like coal, petroleum, and other fossil fuels, which must eventually run out. However, the virtue of the price system is still prevalent. Producers do not simply find out one day that fossil fuels have disappeared. A non-renewable resource becomes increasingly scarce. Price respond by rising, incentivizing market participants to move towards different resources, such as green energy from fossil fuels. This argument is borne out in the facts as renewable sources of energy become progressively cheaper relative to fossil fuels and make up a gradually larger portion of world energy consumption despite enormous subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Even the United Nations hardly a bastion of the advocacy of laissez-faire recognizes the value of growth in promoting sustainability. To achieve a goal of sustainable economic growth, the United Nations essentially suggests achieving a higher GDP and a lower unemployment rate. 
Though economists of all stripes criticize contemporary methods of measuring economic growth, the empirical and theoretical evidence on this matter should lead policymakers in the direction of a more laissez-faire attitude toward the economy. Admittedly, boundless economic activity is often linked with environmental destruction, which would appear antithetical to any reasonable notion of sustainability. The immense growth of Indian industry has no doubt been accompanied by an inspissating smog in the Delhi sky. Man, sorry for that word. And Parisians also seem to find themselves in the midst of a population debate with riots breaking out in the streets over measures to counter them, such as carbon taxes, which do seem like an attractive way out to some. Such an outlook would be mistaken. As an economy expands, resource usage becomes increasingly efficient and economies tend to move away from ecologically harmful behavior while raising the standard of living of its participants. In fact, the 2018 Yale Environmental Performance Index shows a clear positive correlation between economic growth and environmental performance. It is clear that for the planet to keep up with the rapidly growing population, it is absolutely necessary to liberate the global economy from the fetters of needless regulations and burdensome tax, and instead pursue policies that not only sustain the status quo, but also encourage further production and economic growth. Of course, all activity is not without some impact on the planet, but allowing markets to work and economies to grow is our best hope at moving in a direction that can deal with a global population that shows no signs of reducing anytime soon, while gradually pushing economies toward greater sustainability. While much of the Earth's resources are finite, there is no limit to human ingenuity and potential, which should be harnessed to its absolute maximum to advance human freedom and flourishing. Uh, end of the article. It's articles like this that make me reflect upon uh, one of my economics professors in college who, uh, in reflecting upon it, to his credit, uh, gave us lo uh, a lot of nuggets of truth uh, outside of the textbook um, that as a, you know, as a, uh, late teens, early twenties individual, um, you may not pay much attention to, uh, at the time, uh, because there's no real world analogs to compare it to. Uh, and yet this elder statesman, uh, of the economics world, uh, you know, seemed to be at a point in his career where he didn't really care, um, if what he was saying was contradicting the textbook. Uh, because, as you know, I'm going to say, as a true economist, uh, he looked at the uh, real-world applications, not the, the theoretical um, examples that were provided in the book. Um, so, you know, one of the things he said when it came to, um, you know, th uh, this was in a, an environment, environmental economic class as well. Um, one of the things that he said at one point when the discussion came to what do we do about uh, fossil fuels and energy consumption and all this, you know, the, the environmental impact uh, on, you know, on, on population and society. Um, and when he, when he stepped out from the book, he basically made the claim um, that we would, you know, as, as a planet, uh, we would likely never run out of oil. And, you know, that's shocking to hear, right? Because every, all the media that you hear, all the propaganda that you get um, in all your classes leading up to that point, basically said that, you know, we're, it's a, it's a non-renewable resource and eventually you just run out. And he goes, well, those people aren't factoring in the costs of obtaining, uh, that non-renewable resource. Right. And at, at some point, right, because the supply gets so, and then, you know, then you throw up the, you know, the, the supply and demand chart, uh, from, from econ 101 on the board and he goes, the supply becomes so low that the price in order to, uh, meet demand becomes so high uh, that something else, an alternative, will step in and take its place, right? A a a, a competing good, or you know, or, yeah, comp uh, a competition good, in this case, would then replace, uh, you know, would would, re would replace that resource in the market. And what we have right now is solar and wind energy and all that other stuff, um, and subsidized all the way around. Right. But he said, you know, in a truly free market, um, as as oil uh, and natural gases and all that other stuff become depleted, uh, the prices start to rise. And as the price starts to rise for consumers, uh, consumers start to look for alternatives. And as prices start to rise for producers to, to mine that stuff uh, in order to, you know, to get it out of the ground, they start looking for more efficient ways 
uh, to use their resources to obtain, you know, to, to for for their ROIs and, and investments opportunities, and they start to look for other things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And right now we seem to be in kind of like the uh, middle corrupted stage of that, um, where people are realizing, you know, that the that you know we're we're that other viable alternatives to coal uh, and oil are coming to fruition. Um, and they're looking at it, right? Investments are being made into wind farms. Solar is a big deal in most places, uh, depending on where you're at, you know, the, um, what is it? Uh, water plants, uh, water resources, and they're putting in the, the underground, the underwater turbines to, to produce energy that way. Uh, there, there are all these other investment opportunities, um, that are becoming more viable, right? And, and as they, you know, get explored more and as the costs start to equalize, um, people start to transition away from the, the less, from the non-renewable, more expensive resources, uh, to that of, excuse me, to that of the, the, the cheaper renewable resources. What corrupts it currently, um, is the fact that it's all subsidized all the way around, right? And, you know, uh, why are people moving to solar and electric? Well, for the tax credit, right? Cause it's, it's not that cheap, uh, to, to put up the, to, to put up panels or to get an EV or anything like that. It's, you know, the, it, the, the technology isn't all the way there yet to make it economically efficient, uh, without the subsidies. So, you know, the, the environmentally conscious individuals, uh, love the subsidies, right? Where all pays for one, uh, so that more, more ones move in that direction. And I would say, no, just, you know, if you just let it play out and let, you know, nature take its course, um, you know, like my, like my environmental econ professor would say, uh, at some point you just hit, hit an equilibrium point and people start to move the other direction. You don't, you don't have to force the issue, right? It, it's a, it's a natural occurring, uh, concept within a, a capitalist structure, uh, within a laissez-faire economy with a hands-off approach, uh, dare I say, a, a stateless free market anarchist society would, you know, do the same thing. Uh, and that is, you know, seek out what is profitable, uh, all the way around, right? I want the most bang for my buck. So does the, so does the producer. So does the miner, um, the, the solar panel makers, right? They, they all want it. Um, and the, that's the best way to get human flourishing. Uh, one of the other things I remember him saying, uh, this is just a little nugget for you. I don't know what bearing it has on the article, but it's something I took away. Um, as he said, you know, be careful of statistics, right? Because, you know, certain things in statistics are inevitable uh, and you got to be careful with the numbers. So, you know, this is environmental, this is environmental impact uh, of the power plant uh, in a, um, in a populated area. And it was basically, uh, we were, we were reading an anecdote or an example of a, of a town or whatever that, you know, had the, the power lines running through it to, to serve the local community. And for whatever reason, uh, this town had the highest, uh, rate of cancer per capita and they were blaming the power lines and the power company and, you know, trying to sue them for, for causing all this. And, you know, when you take a step back and like the, the econ professor, asked us to do, he said, well, you got to be careful with statistical numbers because somewhere in the world exists, right? The town with the highest rate of cancer per capita, right? That's, that's a known thing, right? As long as you can get the statistics, you know, cause uh, if you measure all the towns, there are going to be some town that has the highest rate, right? So you can't believe, you, you know, you can't get, uh, you can't attach an emotional aspect to that and say like, well, because this place has the highest rate, they need, uh, you know, they, they need to be paid more, or, you know, be paid to live there or, um, subsidized their existence, uh, simply for that reason. Um, because somewhere in the world they exist, right. And there, there's no getting around that. So to, to apply statistical significance to that, um, is bad economics and therefore going to be bad policy decision-making later. So I just wanted to throw that one out there because, uh, it was the second example that came to mind. Um, when I, whenever I think about this professor and the stuff that he said, and a lot, that's the thing about college, man, a lot of the nuggets that I retain and obtain from there, um, happened outside the textbooks happened after the classes. Uh, it was the little one-off throwaway statements that the professor said, you know, based on their experience, not based on what the textbook said. And, you know, the, the later I get uh, in my life, the more I realize that that was the important stuff that you learn. 
So if you happen to be in school, in college, uh, number one, what the hell are you doing? Uh, but number two, uh, don't pay too much attention to, to what the textbooks say. Uh, good in theory usually, you know, doesn't generally uh, relate to best in practice. Uh, but the professors themselves, you know, they, they have to teach the curriculum. Um, but they're also given a little bit of freedom to, to say what they want and say what they, how they feel. Um, so it might be those little nuggets of wisdom that stick out for you too. Just saying. Moving on. Should entrepreneurs really have to justify their creations to government? To suggest that regulators decide which innovation should be allowed in society and which one should be discouraged is dangerous and harmful to human progress. Yeah, so let's just go ahead and answer that. Uh, no. Uh, but the article is much longer than that, so let's read it. The umbrella was an innovation in 18th century London, and the first brave soul to use one was mocked and publicly shamed. It might seem crazy that Londoners didn't jump at the opportunity to be able to protect themselves from rain, but their initial reaction to umbrellas is pretty consistent with general human behavior regarding innovation. The journey between the invention and adoption of new technology tends to be nonlinear, and there are often several iterations of a product before widespread adoption. This process is a key aspect of technological advancement, and yet there is a growing push in academia for entrepreneurs to prove their inventions are socially beneficial before they are allowed to put their products to market and gauge the consumer's response to their innovations. Government should not decide what is socially beneficial. Uh, last month, Margaret Vestager, the EU Commissioner for Competition, hosted a one-day conference titled Shaping Competition Policy in the Area of digitization digitization in the first panel of competing data privacy and artificial intelligence one of the panelists karen jung a law professor at the university of birmingham argued not all innovation is socially beneficial some innovation is harmful corrosive and socially damaging often driven by motivations we wouldn't like to encourage what we want to encourage is not innovation carte blanche but socially beneficial innovation whilst discouraging its damaging forms. But what exactly is socially beneficial innovations? And how can lawmakers have the foresight to recognize it, if indeed a particular technology will be socially beneficial? Moreover, how can regulators ensure that socially beneficial innovations are adopted? After all, people who needed umbrellas rejected them. For a more recent example, let's take Facebook. In 2005, TechCrunch founder Michael Arrington wrote an article expressing his FOMO. He desperately wanted a Facebook account, but at the time, the social networking site was only open to American college students. By 2009, Facebook was not only open to everyone, but it had also pl played a pivotal role in the election of the first black president of the United States of America, Barack Obama, in what has since been called the Facebook election. Deloitte published a study in 2015 on Facebook's global economic impact. The study explored not only people who are directly employed by Facebook, but the millions of jobs that feed off of Facebook's business model, including social media marketers and app developers. Deloitte estimated that the through the channels of marketers, apps developers, and providers of connectivity, Facebook enabled $227 billion of economic impact and 4.5 million jobs globally in 2014. By 2017, 70 million monthly small businesses users leveraged Facebook to advertise and create jobs. If, back in 2003, Mark Zuckerberg had been required to ask Congress for their blessings for his pre-Facebook project, Facesmash.com, and pled the case for what his innovation was socially beneficial, it is highly unlikely that politicians would have the foresight to predict how Facebook would evolve, and who could blame them. Few could have imagined that a social site originally intended to rate students' attractiveness would evolve into one of the most successful businesses of all time, an economic powerhouse creating jobs in the USA and across the world, and even helping the first black president of the United States win the election. Policymakers aren't clairvoyants, and entrepreneurship tends to be outside their area of expertise. If entrepreneurs must seek the government's blessing before experimenting with their ideas, it will result in slower economic growth with fewer products, low-quality services, and higher prices. Everyone will lose. Digital regulation advocates are ignoring history. 
To be sure, Dr. Jung pointed out some key problems with digital technology that deserves some attention. She argued that fake news, misinformation, and the promotion of extremist violence online are among the damaging types of innovations that should be discouraged. But these phenomena are hardly unique to the digital age. In 2017, The Economist published a brief history of fake news that explored how, in the 1800s, the New York Sun used stories of a giant man-bats on the moon as part of a commercial strategy to increase readership. Misinformation has been a feature of human communication since before the invention of the printing press in 1493. In 2018, the International Center of Journalists published a learning module on the history of misinformation detailing both state and private misinformation campaigns dating back to Anthony and Cleopatra. As for the promotion of violence, terrorists and freedom fighters alike have long used pamphlets, folktales, poetry, and even songs to reach their target audience and motivate them to carry out acts of violence. While digital technologies might be the next step in the spread of fake news and violent content, it is inaccurate to argue that they have led to some sort of unprecedented increase in these phenomena. When taken at face value, the argument that the government should only, be, should only allow socially beneficial innovations may sound pretty harmless. But to suggest that regulators decide which innovations should be allowed in society and which ones should be discouraged is dangerous and harmful to human progress. The government cannot regulate creativity or manage how technologies evolve over time. And frankly, regardless of its recent scandals, it would have been a shame if regulators had squashed Facebook before it even had a chance to flourish. End of the article. This is another one of those reasons where I, I like the ideas of the Kickstarters and the Indiegogos and all that other fun stuff um, is because it allows for creators, creatives, innovators, inventors, uh, those people um, to get their product out uh, to the masses um, and and let, you know, they, they get the market signal before they even have to, to run a production line. Right. They don't they don't have to produce a lot before they can get some feedback on whether the idea is going to be worth it or not. Um, and sometimes even after you pump a bunch of money into it, right, the, you, the product not doesn't ship, doesn't get delivered, uh, fails shortly thereafter. What seemed like a good idea at the time isn't so much anymore. Um, and then you learn and move on. Um, so I would never I would never want to stifle creativity or stifle innovation or anything like that, uh, let alone. Uh, advocate for the the government or the state uh, to do the same. So no, entrepreneurs should not have to justify anything to anybody, right? Aside from justifying their existence to the consumers they're trying to sell to, right? If you want to move that product, you're right. You, the, the justification comes from those looking to buy and those looking to want it. Um, and sometimes, um, especially in, in the areas currently interesting and occupying my mind, um, even when they fail on those platforms, right? Uh, if, if the entrepreneur and the innovator or whatever is, is committed uh, to, their, to their product to get it out there for those that do want it, even if they didn't reach a funding goal, um, then at least those platforms created an opportunity for them to advertise uh, and market the coming product to get the people interested uh, to maybe cough up a little bit, a little bit more funding off-platform or, you know, to, to go the pre-order route where as long as enough pre-orders come in, uh, they can do a limited production run or, or anything like that, uh, I always think is a good thing. So whereas I don't back uh, that many Kickstarter programs or products because I'm more of a wait and see, right? When you're shipping, I don't mind paying a little bit more, right? If, you know, if, if I could have saved a hundred bucks by pre-ordering, uh, you know, that the risk is too great for me. I'll just pay the hundred bucks more when I know I'm going to get the product. Uh, but that's just me, right? You, you can be the investor. You can be the risk taker. You can be like, wow, this is such a great idea. I want to pump some money into it now to make sure uh, to hopefully ensure that it does make it to market and, and risk that money if you want to. Um, that's just not my personal style. But those people shouldn't have to justify anything to the state as to why they should exist. Uh, the only people that need to be uh, convinced that they're necessary is the consumers. Uh, and like the example of the umbrella, right? Even if they get rejected uh, outright, uh, if, if you're, if it's a good idea and you're committed to it, uh, just keep on pressing through, uh, and, and see what happens at the end. All right. Um, man, let's do it. I'm going to try to get into one more article here and then might just wrap the show. 
uh, without commentary because I'm, um, I'm fast approaching the end of my allotted time here, or my chosen allotted time here. Um, so we'll see how far I get with this one, and then we'll just run off with that. Study finds nearly half of child and adult sex trafficking victims were abused by police. A shocking report from the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women paints a disturbing picture of law enforcement and their role in sex trafficking. The report found that instead of preventing child and sex trafficking, many police officers are participating in it. Uh, the report is titled Sex Trafficking in Hawaii, the Stories of Survivors, which detailed the testimonials from multiple victims. One particularly disturbing part of the report was the fact that almost half of all the victims interviewed reported that police participated in their abuse and victimization. The corruption of members of the criminal justice system reported by the participants in the study were pervasive in their stories being prostituted, the report noted. The report found that the average age of those being trafficked is just 14 years old, showing how early the abuse began. One of the victims interviewed who wished to remain anonymous for obvious reasons explained that the same people that are charging you for prostitution are the people turning around and buying it from you. Another participant in the study noted that police would even help acquire the young girl's drugs. The teenager was living in a drug house which had been busted by police and after the raid, the officer told the girl, if you want pills, don't mess with this little kid, you call me. Kara uh, Jabola Carolis with the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women explained that the abuse was extensive on all levels of the spectrum. This ranged from cops asking for sexual favors to more coercive situations like I'll let you go if you do X, Y, or Z for me, uh, bring customers after hours in exchange for cigarettes or gas money, she explained. When confronted with this information about the abuse of sex trafficking victims by police officers, Honolulu Police Chief Susan Ballard issued the following statement. I am deeply concerned and will continue to ask the commission to provide additional information so that HPD can investigate. We respect the participants' privacy and understand why they don't want to be identified. However, if they can provide us with when or where the activity occurred and the description of the officer, we will investigate to the fullest extent possible. HPD does not condone the behavior described in the study under any circumstance. While the idea that police officers are abusing victims of sex trafficking may seem outlandish to some, it should come as no surprise to those who have been paying attention, especially out of Hawaii. As the Free Thought Project previously reported in 2014, Honolulu police officers urged lawmakers to keep an exemption in state law that allows undercover officers to have sex with prostitutes during investigations. For years, Hawaii allowed their cops to have sex with prostitutes and victims of human trafficking while at the same time arresting these women. It's not just Hawaii either. In Michigan, police were granted immunity from prosecution if they had sex with a prostitute or a sex trafficking victim during an investigation. This was legal for law enforcement all the way up until 2018 when lawmakers had to get a bill passed to specifically outlaw the practice of having sex with victims of human trafficking. Both the cops in Hawaii and Michigan put up huge resistance to outlawing sex with human trafficking victims, claiming it was necessary to catch lawbreakers. However, Bridget Carr, a director of the Human Trafficking Clinic at the University of Michigan Law School, explained how cops use these laws to further exploit their victims. What I do know from my own clients is that the people who either say they are cops, who are cops, who are impersonating cops, know about this exemption and threaten my clients with it sometimes, she said. Police officers using their powers to exploit human trafficking victims is a common thread among many cases. On multiple occasions, the Free Thought Project has reported interviews of former child sex trafficking victims who are all, who, who've all noted that they had nowhere to go as police and high-level politicians all participated in the abuse. In case after case, the Free Thought Project reports on horrifying instances of child sex rings that were allowed to go on for decades because politicians, including heads of state, policemen, clergy, and others, were all in on the sick game. <clears throat> uh, end of the article. Uh, and I just want to make uh, one clarifying note that relates back to the uh, what we talked about uh, in the beginning of the show, and that is I want to make sure that there is a, a differentiation uh, between prostitutes, sex workers, um, and sex trafficking victims, uh, because I don't, I, I definitely make a distinction, uh, and the way the article was throwing about the term, uh, sex trafficking victim, uh, it does not make it clear, um, that they differentiate. So let's just, 
let's just make that clear that you, you can be a, a voluntary prostitute selling sex for money. Uh, and that's as long as it's voluntary, right. Should be allowed. Um, but the, the girls who are forced into it, uh, regardless of age, right. Would be, would be a coercive act and therefore not only frowned upon, uh, but should be, uh, criminal behavior, even in a polite anarchist society. Um, and the underage ones, again, I don't want to get into the age debate. Um, but yeah, if, if you're, if you're taking advantage of minors, um, who have even less of a choice based on, you know, their legal working situation, um, also should not be allowed. And, um, Again, it should be no surprise, uh, you know, based on the, the amount of, you know, the, I, at one point I said, with all the bad cop stories I read, we could turn this into the bad cop podcast, uh, but I don't want to do that. So I, I try to limit it. <clears throat> and this is the one for this week, uh, should become as no surprise, um, that, you know, people in power take advantage of their power, uh, to victimize the weak, uh, and otherwise helpless individuals. So I don't, you know, if, if this is news to you. Uh, you know, welcome to the real world. Um, and yeah, so bad cops, uh, bad politicians and man, do I want to say, yeah, let's say, uh, should be put down right for the, you know, for the record, um, that sort of behavior shouldn't be tolerated in any society. Um, and I, I find it difficult to accept the world where, where people, you know, just want to investigate and slap on the wrist. These people, no, you know, Lock them up, lock them up and let the, you know, let the other quote unquote criminals uh, do their thing. Uh, because usually the, the people who get locked up for abusing children uh, don't make it very far uh, when, when they have to face the real consequences of their actions, uh, not the state sponsored consequences of their actions. Um, that'll do it. I made my time. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you want to contribute to the show financially, uh, Patreon, uh, because why the hell not? Uh, Patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to y'all next week. Peace.